Welcome to Veterinary Advice, Animal News, and Views, the place for pets. And they're people who love them. Aw, he's so soft. Come here, come here, boy. Here is your host, practicing veterinarian, veterinary news network reporter, and host of the popular YouTube show, The Web DVM, Dr. Roger Welton. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Veterinary Advice, Animal News and Views. I'm your host, Roger Welton, coming to you from the Florida Space Coast. Thank you very much for joining me this evening. Our topic tonight is keeping your pets and family healthy. A little follow-up from my last WebDVM episode that I had aired last week. As many of you know, I do have a YouTube show called The WebDVM. That's actually a video cast. I do post it on my blog, webdvm.blogspot.com, as well as I post this podcast there. But uh, the topic of the show really pertained to, I'm talking about the WebDVM, that is, that particular episode pertained to people sharing their beds with their pets and some of the inherent dangers that that can cause. And I think I peeved a few people because... A lot of people like to share their beds with their pets, with their cats or their dogs, and they like to snuggle with them, and certainly that's something that, that I enjoy as well. Well, pre-marriage, once I got married, uh, no pets in the bed after that, but up until then, my big old 90-pound Labrador was you know, right there cuddling in bed with me, so um, I can certainly understand people uh, wanting to share their bed with their pets, and I didn't want to imply that really that's something I'm against. Um, essentially, there was a news article, not a news article, but a journal article that was posted in the academic journals by a Dr. Bruno Chamel that this particular veterinarian was warning against the dangers of sleeping in bed with one's pets. Well, mainstream media got a hold of this, and next thing you know, throughout the country across 18 different major media markets, this sort of sensational story uh, or, or kind of cascade of stories get out there that, you know, sleeping with your bed or sleeping in bed with your pets could make kill you and, and whatever. So what I wanted to do was take that situation and, and, and just clarify. I wanted to basically talk about the fact that, you know what, to some degree these dangers are real and we need to acknowledge that. However, 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 um, the, the, the point we need to take away is that, you know, it, it's not – it was a little sensationalized for the sake of mainstream media wanting to attract audiences. That's what their job is to do. They want listeners, readers, and they want viewers. So, yeah, they sensationalized it a bit and kind of blew it out of proportion. But at the same time, you know, like, like I said, we do acknowledge that some of these dangers are real. And I'll get into that a little bit before before long here. And, but they're, realistically, you can really minimize the danger, and, and that's really was part of the big point of what I was talking about, and I touched on that a bit in the the webcast, but here's the thing. In the web DVM, YouTube only allots, you know, less than 10 minutes, so typically my news stories are somewhere between three and five minutes, and, and so I don't, you know, there's kind of a script that I'm reading from, and, and really I'm not taking a lot of time to actually, you know, sit and chat with you about it, and that's why I love this podcast to sort of augment that because I can sit here and explain things a little bit more conversationally. So, you know, one of the big things I want to talk about is let's talk about these real dangers. Let's not sensationalize them, but let's talk about it realistically and objectively. And let's let's talk about really keeping your pet and your family healthy. You know, there are communicable diseases that your pets can pass on to you and can pass on to your children. 
and some of them are very serious, and, and we have to acknowledge that, and there's ways that we can prevent them, and I want to talk about that today. But first, let's get into, we have three email questions tonight. Let's get into our first one, and uh, after that, we'll dive into this topic. The first question was sent in by Samantha of Stony Plain, Alberta, Canada. And her question is as follows. I am a big but newer fan of your podcast and have learned so much from the time I have spent listening. Had a comment slash question for you regarding the so-called quote-unquote holistic diets that have been the craze for so long now. I have worked at two veterinary clinics which carried only veterinary diets, including Hills and Medi-Cal, but did some research and question asking when we had so many clients questioning, lecturing us on these high-protein diets, which had very little research and medical evidence behind them. From a few professionals I spoke to, some were concerned with the idea that these high-protein, low-carb diets could affect animals predisposed to kidney issues. I also knew a vet tech that switched her dog to one of these diets after her dog was diagnosed with kidney failure, which really concerned me because all the kidney-focused diets I knew were of low-protein formulations. Just wondering if you had any thoughts on this. I also had an idea to throw your way about a possible topic to cover. Both of my family dogs have suffered from spinal conditions injuries. I know this is not uncommon, especially among breeds like Bassets and Dachshunds. My one older Bichon Cross suffered from intervertebral disc disease, which left her paralyzed. She completely recovered after treatment of prednisolone and anti-inflammatory joint supplements. And our other Bichon suffered paralysis because of a hydrocephalic skull abnormality, which causes spine to displace and is still recovering a year after his surgery. I would love more information on any type of spinal disorder, especially on post-injury care and rehabilitation. I do believe this is such an important topic because time is of the essence when a spinal or when a spinal issue arises. Anyways, keep up the good work. I will continue to listen religiously and will probably bug you with more comments and questions in the future. Regards, Samantha. Bug me. What are you kidding me, Samantha? This is a wonderfully intelligent uh, post here, and I really do appreciate you taking the time. You obviously know a lot about veterinary medicine. You obviously have a great deal of experience and, and how uh, articulate as well. So I actually really enjoy this. Um, I'll get to the spinal issue in a second, but let me talk about the holistic diet. I think you're absolutely correct. I think that there is, and I, I kind of did a, I did an episode on this a while back, not too long ago, I forget exactly what what month what month is uh, excuse me blah what month it was um, about the grain free craze is it really something that is going to cure everything you know and and realistically you know I think there are bona fide cases of grain allergies that manifest as food allergy either at the level of the gut or at the level of the skin and certainly we have to recognize that but realistically grains when we look at uh, corn or wheat glutens. We're talking about number somewhere between nine, number five and number seven on the food allergy list. Number one is beef, actually. So, <clears throat> you know, it's what you're what we're usually talking about with food allergy is a animal, you know, matter, animal flesh type of uh, allergy. Uh, and so, you know, like I said, beef is number one. The grain allergy is real, but it's not the source of all evil like some will lead you to believe. So that said, um, you know, I, I think there's no one perfect diet for any one dog. And I think it's fine for people to sort of do the trial and error thing. But you're right, we do have to be careful with these super high protein holistic diets that are out there. And some of them, you know, are are like 30, 30 plus percent protein, which for dogs is just plain not correct. 
Um, dogs should be eating somewhere between 20 and at the highest 26-27% protein. Dogs are omnivores, and to feed them such a high level of protein does tax the liver and kidneys. I can quickly explain why. Protein, when it's ingested in its in intact form, are really big chain proteins. So they have to be broken down into smaller segments to be absorbed and utilized by the body. That whole process has waste associated with it, and it doesn't matter how perfect and how good the protein is, there's always going to be proteinaceous waste associated with this breakdown metabolic process. Specifically, that waste product is, ready for this, ammonia. All right? We're all familiar with ammonia as a cleaning product, and so the end product of protein metabolism is ammonia. Now, luckily, we have a liver, and the liver takes that ammonia and converts it into urea, a less obnoxious form of ammonia, and that urea then travels via the bloodstream to the kidneys, where it is eliminated in the urine. So it makes perfect sense that if we're just, you know, just completely demolishing these dogs with protein all their lives, you're going to tax that liver and kidney system excessively. So that's absolutely correct. We do not want to be beating up these dogs with protein. So um, that said, I do feed my dogs uh, a holistic diet. I feed them solid gold. And one of the reasons I like solid gold, this particular brand, the Hundenflocken, is it's not madly infused with protein. We're talking about you know 25-26% protein. Um, the grain-free is better for my lab because he was getting the Hershey squirts uh, from, from diets with grains in them. So in his case, it was beneficial. I feed it to my other dog only because it's easier to feed two dogs one food. But, you know, does she need it? No. Um, but, uh, you know, so you have to just kind of pick and choose and understand that just because it has the word holistic on it doesn't mean it's perfect. And and as far as your friend that has a, a dog and kidney failure that has put the dog on a holistic high-protein diet, that's just beyond absurd. Um, she's basically... Uh, accelerating the demise of that dog. Um, kidney diets should be protein sodium restricted. Um, they should be engineered in such a way that they are, I'm sorry, not just protein and, uh, and, and sodium, but also phosphorus restricted. Phosphorus beats up on kidneys too, and a high protein diet is not going to be phosphorus restricted. I doubt it's going to be sodium restricted. And we, of course, we know because it's high protein, it's not protein restricted. Playing with fire, don't agree with it. Bad, bad thing to do. And um, she doesn't believe you, tell her to listen to this broadcast. But um, very nice question. And as far as the spinal issue, I'm going to let that lie right now because I will be covering that next week in my WebDVM broadcast, uh, the one on YouTube. So I would refer to my blog and, you know, just check for the posting of that particular webcast. Or you can just go to my YouTube channel. Uh, I'm going to be doing not only a, a WebDVM episode on that, I'm also going to follow up with a podcast like I'm like kind of like I did this time around where I talked about this particular news story and I'm following up today. So speaking of that news story, let's get right into it. So we talked about in the WebDVM the fact that this one doctor, like I said, Dr. Bruno Chamel put out this journal uh, article and it was really meant to be, you know, sort of uh, among the academic circles and mainstream media got a hold of it and suddenly this mass hysteria about Sleeping in bed with your pets is potentially deadly. And so definitely overblown, hypersensational. But let's talk about the real, the, the real issues here. Um, I want to say for the record, I am not against people sharing their bed with their pets. I'm not against it, not against it. Again, I've done it myself. 
um, before I shared my bed with my wife. But <laughs> there's no uh, no room in the animal or no room for the animals anymore in the bed. But all my life, uh, from adolescence through high school and college, I always had a big old dog in my bed, and that's just you know the way I like to sleep, snuggled up with a big, warm, cuddly animal. Um, and, and so we don't want to take that away from people. Uh, but at the same time, we, we have to understand that there are things we can catch from our dogs and cats. Now, the first thing I want to talk about, because one of the, one of the examples Dr. Tremell used in his article was a 15-year-old boy in California that was sleeping with his flea-infested cat actually got plague. Now, for those of you not familiar with bubonic plague, um, open a history book some time and find out uh, what it did to Europe in the 1300s and at various times throughout history where outbreaks of plague wiped out millions of people, huge percentages of the population. Plague is caused by a bacteria known as Yersinia pestis. And Yersinia pestis lives in the gut of a flea. And it doesn't live in the gut of every flea. In fact, it's fairly rare to see on dog and cat fleas, but if that flea had spent any time on a rat, it's actually going to pick up the plague um, bacteria from the rat and jumps on your kitty cat or dog, you could end up getting infected if that flea accidentally bites you. So, you know, that's a real danger. And it really happened. It made big news. Now, the good thing about plague these days is that we have antibiotics, and plague responds very nicely to antibiotics. At the same time, you don't want your 15-year-old child coming down with plague. It's still much better to not get it. And, and really the point is, had that cat been on a good monthly flea preventative, veterinary-grade flea preventive, and was being properly cared for in that manner... The, 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 probably the kid would have never gotten plague because there wouldn't have been fleas on the cat. And so, you know, the, really the, the, the crux of the issue is not the cat being in bed with the kid. The crux of the issue is that cat wasn't properly cared for. So horrible for the cat to be living with all those fleas. Terrible. Being bitten that frequently, it must be agonizing to live like that. All right? Bad for the kitty. We're all, if you're listening to this show, you, your heart goes out to the kitty cat. But but to allow that cat to sleep in bed with your child, um, you know, th that's just beyond stupid. So, you know, here we have a, a, a cat not being treated properly and then in bed with a kid. And, and, and so you're just asking for disaster. So, you know, that's one example. You know, let's just put it out there. You risk your child or yourself potentially coming down with Let's not just talk about plague. Let's just talk about critters in general, ticks. Ticks can carry Lyme disease. Um, Lyme disease affects people just as it does dogs. That's one of the things we share. Now, we don't catch it from one another, but we catch it from infected ticks. Can a tick crawl off our dog, you know, run up on us, start feeding, and inoculate us with Lyme disease? Absolutely. So that's another one we have to be careful with. If your dog is on a good flea and tick preventive, these days there's some there's an amazing product called Certifect that has slowly that is slowly replacing Frontline. It's made by a company called Muriel. Frontline has been around forever, but this particular uh, newer version of Frontline, they call it Certifect, has the same flea killing uh, capacity, but 
it is incredible when it comes to ticks. In fact, within five minutes of application of this stuff, ticks start falling off and dying. Whereas previously, ticks, you know, were a little bit more challenging to kill. So, you know, you are not treating your dog properly with a flea and tick preventive. Well, you risk Lyme disease. Let's talk about parasites, right? One of the things we do in a yearly visit is we strongly recommend a stool sample to do a stool analysis. Let's face it, animals root around in things that are just nasty. Cats eat rodents. Dogs eat rodent poo. Cat Dogs eat cat poo. Dogs sniff around in disgusting whatever. <laughs> you know, they're dogs. And as much as we love them and how human-like they can seem, they do less than savory things. You know, sometimes with the dogs, the stinkier and more decrepit and nasty, the better. And so because they tend to roll around and root around in disgusting things and sniff other dogs' butts and whatnot, they are way more prone to parasites than we are. And some of these parasites can make us sick. Now, the biggest risk is with toddlers, small children. Um, they're actually, you know, we're not the, the definitive host for a lot of for these parasites. So um, if there's an accidental infection, um, what happens is there's this one particular a worm called a roundworm, which is exceedingly common in both dogs and cats, especially dogs. And the roundworm, while it's not going to reach adulthood in a human, in a very little human, um, the immune system isn't up to par yet as a juvenile immune system, and it can reach a stage of development called ocular larval migraines, which means that these larvae can migrate through the body. And while they're not adult worms, they're migrating, 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 and they can actually end up in the eyeball. And once in the eyeball, they cause irreversible blindness. And so we see a certain number of cases of blindness in young children, pretty much six years and under, are susceptible to ocular larval migraines. And that's really frightening. Um, there's also other types of migratory worms that may not, again, reach adulthood and start wreaking havoc on the intestines, but there's some that can migrate into the skin and we call these dermal larval migraines and cause serious rashes and skin infections in children. So that's another thing we need to be careful with. So you do that stool sample once a year. You know, that's one way to check for these things. But secondly, if you have your dog on a good heartworm preventive, these days heartworm preventives are very well-rounded. They're not just killing heart, the heartworm parasite. They're also typically killing several species of parasite worms as well and you're doing that every month and that's one of the things that keeps me very vigilant about treating my dog is that I have a three and a half year old son and I have a 17 month old daughter and they love to play with the animals and I don't want to take that away from them I very much enjoy the fact that they can be raised in the atmosphere of three cats and two dogs and really enjoy animals the way I do uh, but at the same time, I don't want to put them in danger, so they're going to get their heartworm and flea preventive. In fact, they're due tonight, so uh, I'm going to be sure and treat them right after this broadcast. So, you know, as far as as far as that's concerned, it's very preventable. Do those regular stool analyses. Do the preventive medications. If there's diarrhea at any time, don't ignore it. Take the dog in. Take the cat in. Have the stool analyzed at that point in time because one of the more common reasons we see diarrhea in dogs and cats is because of parasites. They pick up a parasite, and that's something you don't want your family around. Rabies is another, you know, fairly common um, 
I don't want to say common. It is a very known, that's better terminology, very known danger to humans, of course. Not keeping your dog or cat up to date on a rabies vaccine, you're just playing with fire. Not just by the fact that your dog or cat could catch a imminently deadly disease that they can infect you or your family with that's imminently deadly for you. Um, it also is a big violation of the law. So let's make sure we keep those rabies vaccines up to date. Um, so, you know, you take these precautions, keep the critters up off the, off the pets, um, use good flea and tick preventions, use heartworm, monthly heartworm preventions, um, have them groomed regularly so they're not dirty, you know, uh, brush them, take care of them. Um, you do all these things and you're going to decrease the possibility of them doing harm to your family inadvertently. Of course, they don't they don't want, they don't mean to hurt anybody by jumping in bed with you. They're they're showing their love, they're showing their camaraderie with you. Uh, but at the same time, you know these dangers are real, and we have to we have to think about that. Now, the media reports overblown. <laughs> you know, I gotta say they're they're they were overblown. They scared the crap out of a lot of people uh, unnecessarily. I think I'm glad the awareness was out there. But um, I think it led to just, you know, far too many pets getting relegated to the floor um, that really didn't need to be because a lot of people are out there taking really good care of their animals. And a lot of people are just appalled by the sight of fleas or ticks on their pets and are going to take appropriate measures. So, you know, it's 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 the ones that uh, that somehow find the, the fleas and ticks acceptable and, 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 and don't take the time to have regular yearly visits and the patients, you know, the, the, the pets examined and, and checked out and regularly groomed and cleaned and whatever. It's those people that, that really are causing the most risk to their families. And that's all I was trying to get across in my webcast. Let's move over to uh, another question here sent in by Amanda. Amanda didn't say where she's from. It's just listed as Amanda. Here's her question. My name is Amanda and I recently... This was Saturday, March 24th, adopted a puppy. She's around 9 to 10 weeks old. Terrier Labrador Retriever Mix. I created her since we got her. At night, she's been sleeping perfectly fine. About six to six and a half, six and a half hours without accidents or crying. I work full-time, and so does my boyfriend. I put her to bed last night around 12, and she slept till 6 a.m. No accidents. I took her out, fed her, took her out again, played with her until around 8, and she was with my boyfriend until around 8.45 when I left for work. I put her in the crate, and I was planning to go back and take her out at lunch around 1. So that would have been just a little over 4 hours in the crate, but I kept being told different things. It wasn't good to leave a puppy in her crate any longer than 2 hours, and then I heard I shouldn't go home during lunch and let her out because then she gets in the habit of thinking that that's what is going to happen and she'll never be able to stay. I'm having a very hard time right now. I didn't go home at lunch, and I feel awful. I feel like I'm being the worst owner in the entire world, and my poor puppy is probably hurting and miserable. I've tried to train her to go outside every time. I even think she might need to go. I am out there, and I let her do her thing, and I praise her when she goes outside like she's supposed to, and the few times she started to have an accident, I picked her up so she could finish outside. That's why I created her. I figured it would keep her, the training going. But I feel like me being gone and her created at such a young age for such a long time is not good. So what would be better for me? A, go home on lunch until she's older. Or B, gate off an area and put a bed, toys, water, and then train her with a pee pad. 
I just don't know how to train her with a pee pad and then go outside. Any help would be appreciated. I'm feeling just like just the like just the worst right now, and I just want to do right by her. Please help. Oh, Amanda, you're you have such good intentions, and I'd love to hear that. You have a um. Let's see, Terrier Labrador mix, and and that must be a lot of fun. I could tell you're in love already. Okay, let me just tell you something. You are a good parent. You are doing the right thing. You are crate training your dog. That is the most unconfusing way to to potty train a dog. And I'm sorry, at this age, if they're not in their crate and they're loose, even if they're confined with a, a you know, a crate, you know, in a small bedroom. They're going to pee and poo all over, and you are going to be struggling to get this dog potty trained. So crate training, what it does is it utilizes the principle that dogs, by their nature, do not want to soil where they have to lay. So what happens is they're going to resist, resist, resist. And when you're not home or when you're on the phone or eating dinner or watching a movie or doing anything where you can't physically watch the dog and catch her in the act... She should be in the crate. That way you can sort of gauge when she will and won't go. And you take her out of the crate, you put her out, you let her do her thing. You're playing with her, you're engaging with her. Listen, we all work full time, you know, and we all at some point have had puppies and kittens and, and, and they don't come as instant adults. They have to go through the puppy phase. And, you know, it's just one of those things where, we have to go to work, but you know I, I don't agree that leaving her in the crate for longer than two hours is cruel. Um, I think ideally I would like to see dogs not left in the crate for more than four hours at this age because it can be very difficult for them to continue to hold it uh, beyond four hours. But up to four hours, a twelve, you know, ten, twelve-week-old puppy should be able to hold it, and it helps to train those muscles. You know, those muscles that actually give them control or not fully developed until six months of age. So we're helping to train those muscles and help that along, facilitate and hasten that process. Uh, at around four hours, if you know, if, if you can make it home, ideally that's when you wanna you wanna let her out, um, or have somebody let her out because, you know, until she's six months plus um, I think it can be pretty tough for them to to hold it for longer than four hours. But every two hours, no, I don't I don't agree that that's what's necessary. Um, I also like the fact that you are scooping her up as soon as she's about to have an accident, because you know dragging them to it afterwards and scolding them, it, there's no connection. It doesn't it doesn't register at all. That the dog doesn't even recognize it as you know his own or her own um, elimination, and and so it's catching them in the act, scooping them up maybe startling them with a quick clap of your hands and a no, you know, that sort of thing, running them outside and then praising them when they finish up outside, that's really the best way to potty train a dog. So I think you're doing everything right. Um, I, I, I don't think that uh, you need to let her out every two hours. I think as long as you can accomplish her getting let out uh, every four hours when you're, you know, or no longer than, than four hours uh, during the day when, when you're at work or whatnot, um, th that's acceptable. And so option B, gating off an area, no, not going to work. Train with a pee pad, disaster. <laughs> uh, pee pads, I think, are the worst invention ever when it comes to potty training because on one hand, you're trying to teach a dog not to piddle in the house, but when you put a pee pad down, you're, you're teaching them, well, it's all right to go here in the house. For now, it's very confusing, and it can be very frustrating to wean a dog off of pee pads, and a lot of them will continue to pee on doormats and anything they 
see that's sort of triangular or square in shape because that's what they were trained to do. So don't go there. Keep doing what you're doing. You're doing fine. You're a good pet owner, and you're a smart pet owner. You've learned well, and you're applying the best and most proven technique as far as uh, potty training is concerned. Good luck, and thank you very much for your contribution to the show tonight. And we have one more last question this evening, and then we'll wrap things up. This was sent in by Julia of Hoboken, New Jersey, my old stomping grounds. Hoboken, New Jersey. Man, I had many a fun night there when I lived in Jersey as a young man in my early 20s. <laughs> Not going to go there. But anyway, here's her question. My dog won't stop itching, and now he is literally tearing his hair out. My vet has tried a special expensive diet that I can only buy from him because he thought it would be from his food. Did not work. Benadryl also did not work, so my vet put him on prednisone, which did work, but now that he is off, he is a mess all over again. My vet offered to refill the prednisone, but he drank so much water and was panting so heavily on that stuff that I do not like the idea of him going back on that stuff. Okay, so your dog's got skin allergies, obviously. Uh, up in New Jersey right now, spring is upon you, and the pollens are upon you. Even in the city of Hoboken, there is enough pine trees and oak trees and everything else that's blooming, and you're not going to be immune to allergies. Actually, across the Hudson River, you have Central Park, and believe me, that stuff blows in the air. Central Park is huge, so you get an onshore wind. That's the, the pollens from Central Park are going to blow all over the place. You get an offshore wind, you're going to get all the pollens from west of you, uh, where you know there's a lot of wooded suburban uh, neighborhoods. And so the pollens are inescapable. They're everywhere. And that's probably what your dog is suffering from. Um, it's it's too bad the Benadryl didn't work out. Benadryl in, you know, moderate, advanced, even moderate cases sometimes isn't uh, enough to control the discomfort and the skin allergies. And so your vet obviously broke out prednisone, which is a steroid, which, yes, is almost a guarantee that it's going to work. But, you know, some dogs don't react so great to it. They Some of them will drink a lot of water. Some of them will pant because it can cause stress and anxiety. Sometimes it can cause temperature regulating issues. They get hot flashes and things of that nature. So you'll see the panting. Um, I could certainly understand your vet putting your dog on it and then trying to back them off. Uh, but obviously you back off and, you know, you're kind of right back where you started. So let me offer you a couple options. Option A is to have your dog allergy tested where you actually get a readout of what your dog's reacting to. Not realistically with the ability to change your environment. Good luck changing, you know, the 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 air quality and the, the, the composition of the air and the pollens in the air. Not gonna happen. But the reason we're trying to get the identity of the allergens is because the allergens can get isolated in inject you know, in vials that you can actually draw up and inject the dog with hyper concentrated allergen. And the reason you want to do that is because you basically what you're attempting to do is desensitize the dog. So it's called allergy immunotherapy because by giving the dog heavy doses of whatever he's allergic to regularly, and we start off every four days injections, um, you're hoping to desensitize the immune system to being allergic and sensitive to whatever the dog is reacting to. So I'm kind of a walking example of that. Back in the day, I was allergic to cats and not very good for a budding veterinarian. And so there I was, uh, a 19-year-old kennel boy in college, constantly, constantly itching my eyes and sneezing while I was at work, and everybody was making fun of me, saying, yeah, well, good luck with your career. You want to be a veterinarian? And, you know, anyway, within about a year and a half of working at that place, Nutley Animal Hospital, actually in New Jersey, 
Nutley Animal Hospital, great facility, and uh, my first veterinary job ever, not too far from Hoboken. Uh, about a year and a half of being there, I stopped reacting. You know, I didn't even realize it. You know, suddenly one day somebody says to me, hey, look, you're holding a cat and you're not reacting. I'm like, you know, I haven't in some time. And, you know, I got desensitized. So that's kind of a living example of what we're trying to do there. Now, the, the upside is that there's no drugs. Uh, side effects are typically minimal. Um, the downside is that it can take time to work. Uh, you're often not seeing, you know, an immediate result. It can take weeks. It could take even months in, in, in certain cases. And so the owners, after investing in the uh, testing as well as the vials and the shots and all that, and then taking the time to do them can end up a little bit frustrated. We have, see about 20% of cases don't respond. 80% of cases do, but 20% don't. And that's a pretty high failure rate um, for that kind of, you know, uh, monetary and emotional investment. So you got to think of the pros and cons of each approach. Second approach is perhaps to just get him through the season. You can uh, consider a medication called Temeril P is one I'm, I'm really fond of. Temeril P is nice because it is a combination of an antihistamine, which are very safe, and there's a little bit of prednisone. And because there, there, there's two medications in the pill, both antihistamine and steroid, you're effectively synergizing them together. You get a really nice effect, and you're able to cut down the prednisone dose by 75%. So you're talking about 25% of what you would normally use in its alone form versus you know, the much smaller dose in the Temeril P. So you, I find the side effects are a lot less, both short and long term. So that's something you can consider is maybe just through these pollen months, through the spring season, you know, into maybe June-ish, July, you could think about maybe keeping them on a once-a-day dosing of Temeril P. You could talk to your vet about that. And then option three is considering a medication called Atopica. Atopica is wonderful because it works as well as prednisone without the side effects. In fact, it's super safe. The you know Aside from a few very isolated cases of some GI disturbance, I really haven't seen much in the way of side effects of uh, Atopica. Um, Atopica is cyclosporin-based, and cyclosporin is... Um, an immune suppressant that's a lot easier on the body than prednisone is. Um, but, of course, again, pros and cons. The pros are safe, effective, pr pretty much as effective as a steroid. The con is that it's super expensive. So, um, you know, I, I don't know what kind of dog you have or how big it's dosed by weight. So, you know, if you have a big dog, it can cost as much as three to $400 a month. If you have a little itty-bitty dog, it can cost, you know, somewhere between... 50 and 80 dollars a month so you know the price is going to vary depending on the size of your dog and 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 so depends depending on how your budget is that also is a very nice option for you so um those are three things you could talk to your vet about that's pretty much our show for this evening i hope i clarified everything and i hope that everyone's going to be very proactive in keeping their pets and their families healthy because you know what you can't have one without the other you know um you're going to have a house full of pets in order to keep everybody healthy the people healthy you got to keep those pets healthy as well. And just don't forget that. It's all one and the same. And think about your pets as family members. You want your family members to be healthy. And if they're healthy, it's going to increase the likelihood of everybody else being healthy. Um, so keep that in mind. If you haven't seen the webcast, certainly give it a look. Um, it, it, was, it was interesting. Uh, it, this media report really just, you know, if, if, you, if you actually Google the, Google the actual uh Dr. Bruno Chamel, 
and and see some of the stories that came out of it and how sensational and just god blown out of proportion they were you know you can understand why i felt compelled to do that that broadcast but it certainly wasn't to scare anybody and i certainly don't want to get in between the enjoyment of you and the unconditional love of your pet so keep them healthy and enjoy them in your bed <laughs> have a great night everybody thank you for joining me next time we will talk be talking about spinal cord injuries samantha from canada make sure you tune in take care okay round two name something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh ah oh, sorry we were looking for chumba casino that's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work, limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.